We are in Jeremiah chapters 21 and 22 this week as we continue our attempt to listen for what this book, written for the people of God in exile long ago, might have to say to us, the people of God today. And if we've learned one thing about Jeremiah these past couple months, it's that he was really good at making people feel uncomfortable. And so this week, in that spirit, we're getting political. I know, there's a little trepidation here. Meredith and I last worked at a church where in the run-up to the 2016 election, the staff were forbidden from posting anything political on social media so as not to be divisive. And I remember thinking, in response to certain aspects of the political discourse at the time, what if we say, hypothetically, just quote without commentary, just quote, any of the many verses in the Bible that talk about welcoming the stranger or caring for the resident alien, would that be okay? Or would that be divisive? Because while the Bible is not political in the sense of being Republican or Democrat, it certainly is political in the caring about the type of society we build together or having strong opinions about how those with power should use that power, senses of the word. The foundational statement of the early Christian church was, Jesus is Lord, which might sound like a theological statement to our ears today, and it is, but it was also a clear and intentionally direct counter to the core political slogan of the Roman Empire, which was, Caesar is Lord. This is not accidental. The early church's core message was, our society should be founded not on the lordship of the emperor in Rome, but instead on the lordship of Jesus. And we've seen a similar message in Jeremiah. He was saying to those in Judah, our society should be founded on trust in Yahweh, not trust in any of the many other options that the people had tried. And in a similar way to Jesus's day, religion cannot be isolated from the politics of the time. It, it just didn't work that way. We're starting a section of Jeremiah today that makes the political ramifications of his message even more apparent. The next eight or so chapters of Jeremiah continue many of the same themes that we've seen so far, but they apply them in a slightly different way by focusing in on the failures of the kings, the royal courts, the priests, the prophets of Judah. Judah, in general, is guilty of idolatry and injustice, but they have been led there. They went along willingly, mind you. The people aren't off the hook, but the leaders of Judah come in for particularly harsh criticism in these chapters. In very Jeremiah-like fashion, this critique starts at the end. In chapter 21, there's a story of King Zedekiah sending for Jeremiah to come see him in the royal palace. From the clues we have in this chapter, it seems that this happens in the final days of Jerusalem, with the armies of Nebuchadrezzar, Side note, apparently in the Bible, the name of the king of Babylon is written as Nebuchadnezzar, usually with an N, but in Babylonian records, it was Nebuchadrezzar with an R. So you might see either spelling in whichever Bible you have. But anyhow, the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar are surrounding the city and all seems lost. Except, wait, what about all those stories we've heard about God coming to save us with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand? That's going to happen now again, right? And Zedekiah calls in Jeremiah saying, you're in good with God. Why don't you go ask God if there's a, a message for us? Preferably something about, I don't know, smiting the Babylonians and teaching them a lesson. You know, anything in that vein would be great. And Jeremiah's message in return is basically, you have got to be kidding me. After all I have been saying to you for decades, you have got to be kidding. Oh, God will do battle all right. 
Verse 5, I myself will do battle against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, with anger, rage, and great wrath. And Jeremiah goes on to say, you know, for what it's worth, there is one way you could still survive all this, surrender, go off willingly into exile, give up. It's over. So that's the end of the story. Case closed. It is over for the leaders of Judah. And then the following chapters outline the reasons why. Reasons that will be familiar to us from what we have seen in Jeremiah already. But again, they are applied specifically in these chapters to the kings, priests, royal officials, and prophets. The leaders who have conspired to lead Judah to its doom. Every single king of Jeremiah's lifetime is mentioned in these next couple chapters as a way of emphasizing you all had a hand in this. This is not a knee-jerk reaction on God's part. Okay, so why has Judah ended up besieged by Babylon with God fighting against them instead of for them? Chapter 21, verse 12, David's household, that is, God is speaking to the royal court and kings, the household of David, Yahweh has said this, Do justice morning by morning. Rescue the person who has been robbed from the hand of the oppressor, lest my wrath go out like fire and burns with no one quenching it. Then chapter 22, verse 1. Yahweh has said this, Go down to the house of Judah's king, that is the palace, and speak there this message. Yahweh has said this, Do justice and faithfulness. Rescue the person who has been robbed from the hand of the oppressor. Don't wrong the alien, orphan, or widow. Don't be violent. Don't shed innocent blood in this place. Because if you really implement this message, then through this house's gates will come David's kings sitting on David's throne. This is the job of the king, the priest, all those with power in society, to do justice. And not just any old justice, to do justice on behalf of the vulnerable. The people listed here are the same as those in similar verses all through the Old Testament, aliens, widows, and orphans. What these three groups all have in common is that they do not own land. They have no inheritance by which to support themselves and their families, which means they are vulnerable. If those with power want to, they can exploit these sorts of people. Or, if those with power want to, they can ensure that things go well for them. This idea is why John Golden Gay actually translates do justice as exercise authority. Because sometimes the word justice can bring to mind kind of abstract legal principles, guilt and innocence in a court, that sort of thing. But this idea of helping build a society where the vulnerable can succeed is a far more practical matter of using what authority you have in a good way which Golden Gay argues is far closer to what the Old Testament means when it says, do justice, exercising your authority well and for the right goals. And this is exactly what the leaders of Judah have not done. All through these chapters, there are references to and quotations from the Torah, reminding the people of the commands they have clearly not obeyed. And maybe the most pointed is a message to King Jehoiakim, who we will see again in chapter 36, where he takes a knife to the scroll on which Jeremiah's words have been written down and throws the pieces in the fire one by one, as if by doing so he will nullify the message Jeremiah is bringing, which the king obviously does not like. But for now, here is what God has to say to King Jehoiakim. Hey, 
<laughs> I love that it starts that way. Hey, the one who builds his house without faithfulness, his lofts without justice. Apparently, Jehoiakim either built a new palace for himself or else renovated Solomon's palace to be more luxurious. Maybe he, I don't know, put his name above the building in big gold letters or something. And then Jeremiah continues. He makes his neighbor serve for nothing. He doesn't give him his earnings. The one who says, I'll build myself a vast house, spacious lofts. He cuts windows for it, paneled with cedar, painted with vermilion. Are you a king because you're competing in cedar? Now, fortunately, there aren't any parallels today to God's people following a leader who thinks the size and beauty of his buildings are what makes him great and cares more about that than paying his workers their right wages, fortunately. But then Jeremiah compares Jehoiakim to his father, Josiah. Your father, didn't he eat and drink and implement faithful justice and then things were good for him? He made decisions for the weak and the needy. Then things were good. And here is maybe the key idea in this passage. Isn't that what it means to know me? What does it mean to know God? What's at the heart of it, according to God's words through Jeremiah? To make decisions for the weak and the needy. To do justice on behalf of the vulnerable. That is what it means to know God. But you... Jeremiah continues, you have no eye or mind except for loot, for shedding the blood of the innocent and for oppression and extortion. Therefore, Yahweh has said this concerning Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, Judah's king, they won't mourn for him. Oh, my brother. Oh, my sister. They won't mourn for him. Oh, my Lord. Oh, his majesty. He will be buried with a donkey's burial dragged and dumped outside Jerusalem's gates. Like I said, Jeremiah is not shy about making people uncomfortable. Okay, so where does this leave us? I said we were going to get political today, and we are, because what the powerful of Judah are condemned for here is not private individual moral failing. They are not condemned for sexual sins, which if Solomon and David are any indication, the kings of Judah could definitely be condemned for, if that were the point that God wanted to make. They aren't condemned for not praying enough or not being pious enough. They aren't even, here at least, condemned for their idolatrous worship practices or idolatrous political alliances, although God does speak of those things elsewhere, as we've seen. No, the first charge that God brings against the kings and the powerful is, you have not built a just society, by which God means specifically, you have not formed a society that works for the poor and the vulnerable. That is the job of the powerful. They could have built a society of justice for the vulnerable, but instead they built one that exploits the vulnerable, as most have through the history of the world. In chapter 34, Jeremiah gives one specific example of this. The Torah sets out a structure by which an Israelite who has fallen into debt can become, basically, an indentured servant. But... The time period for this arrangement is limited to seven years, at which point the person is not only supposed to go free, the person they had been working for is required to give them what is more or less seed money to get them started on the road to self-sufficiency again. And the leaders of Judah have allowed the indentured servitude part of that to keep happening, but not the setting free part. The poor have been, in other words, 
systematically enslaved, never to be released. Again, that's just one example. There were surely others that aren't mentioned in Jeremiah. The point we should take away is not, well, we don't enslave people, so good job by us. Jeremiah is making a bigger point about the type of society we build together. And that, again, means politics. Because we don't live in a culture where there's a small, limited number of people with power over what society looks like. Jeremiah spoke this way to the kings, royal officials, priests, and prophets because they were the ones with the power and the influence. And while none of us has the kind of power over our society today that the leaders of Judah had, we do have infinitely more power than the average Judean had in Jeremiah's day. I think Jeremiah's message to us is clear. Whatever social power we have, whatever political power we have, and that's certainly a different amount for different ones of us, I acknowledge, it is our responsibility to use that power as the people of God to create a just society. And, and this is crucial, to create a just society in the sense that God means. A just society is one that protects the vulnerable and creates structures and systems by which such people can succeed. That's what you see in the law from the Torah that we mentioned earlier. A person in debt might end up a servant, but with the requirement that in seven years, at the expense of the one who was served, they will be set back up on their feet again. No questions asked. And this, when we are talking about the structures and systems of our society, that is political. And this is where things can get a little uncomfortable because the reality currently in our political world in the United States is that there are two parties and one seems to care a whole lot more about economic protection of the vulnerable than the other. There are, of course, conservative policy ideas that are directed towards that goal. The Affordable Care Act, after all, was modeled on a health care proposal from a conservative think tank. The earned income tax credit is a conservative proposal to protect the working poor. But those ideas have fallen out of favor in the current Republican Party in a way that is, simply put, antithetical to the message we see here in Jeremiah and in the Bible more generally. Ron Sider, that's S-I-D-E-R, has some excellent books about these ideas, um, including one called Just Politics, one called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, and one called The Scandal of Evangelical Conscience. Although some of those were written over a decade ago, which is almost an unrecognizably different political climate than our current one, so there's probably some updating that's going to be required if you read his books, but I would still recommend them for the ideas that they present. Okay, so Republican bad, we'd vote Democrat then. Well, there are some problems with Democrats on the same front of protecting the vulnerable that we should acknowledge too. Um, just as one example, um, let's talk briefly about what has, for some Christians at least, become the key political issue, abortion. I'm sure we all know people who feel like their faith requires them to be what is sometimes called a single issue voter here. It is the thing that keeps them in a place of pure partisanship. So what do you say about this? For one thing, I think there is a big difference between abortion being legal and abortion being seen as a good thing, which is becoming almost dogmatic in certain wings of the Democratic Party. And we do see, even in the book of Jeremiah, references in the Bible of God relating to and forming plans for people from the time they are in the womb. And while the Bible doesn't specifically weigh in on this issue, 
I think the balance of evidence does favor us seeing a developing fetus as, in terms like we've used today, among the vulnerable that should be protected. But the question we need to answer is, how do we work to protect the vulnerable in this instance? If that is the goal, then we need to recognize that that isn't the same thing necessarily as banning abortion, which is how this debate is usually simplified. Abortion, legal or illegal. We could ban abortion tomorrow, and abortions, they're still going to happen. We need to recognize the reality that abortion is often linked to poverty and lack of opportunity, which then create a sense of hopelessness at the thought of raising a child. We cannot only care about vulnerable, unborn children. We need to care about all of the vulnerable, including the vulnerable women and men, often people of color, who will need to raise that child. So protecting the vulnerable might be better done by looking at the root causes here. Providing better access to contraceptives and knowledge in how to use them. Policies that support working mothers, and fathers for that matter, like subsidized or free childcare. Those sorts of things that remove the reasons for an abortion in the first place. Those might actually have a greater effect on the number of abortions performed than would banning it outright. And they would also have the added side effect of helping vulnerable families who weren't considering abortion in the first place. And, and this is not a small thing, really, those policies would also be more politically realistic in the actual United States we live in today, which matters a lot. With all that said, the answer in all this most definitely is not to support one party or another. The answer is to, again, use the power and influence we do have to advocate for policies that have the intention and effect of protecting the vulnerable. And that can be done in either political party. Because the only way that the Republican Party will start to move back towards policies that align with God's idea of justice, instead of policies that are decidedly unbiblical, like those designed to stoke racial division or to protect gun rights or to help enrich the already wealthy, the only way they are going to move back is if individual Republicans begin to put pressure on the party to do so. And I do want to say one other thing here. The logic behind a lot of what we see in our current political climate seems to boil down to, I want to protect my interests and my rights. And this is where we can draw a really clear answer from Scripture. That justification, I'm looking out for my rights and my interests, is antithetical to Christianity. If our primary concern is my interests and my rights, we quite simply are not following Jesus. Jehoiakim, in this passage, is looking out for his interests and his rights. As king, he has every right to require his subjects to build him a palace and to work for no pay, and he is mocked and condemned for it. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that we as followers of Jesus should have the same mind as Jesus, who instead of holding on to his rights to be equal to God, humbled himself and became human, with the end result being that he is crucified on a cross. Our political power as Christians should be used for one thing and one thing only, not to protect our rights, not to look after our interests, but to build a society that defends and looks out for the vulnerable. There are quite a few ways that could be done. The Bible isn't prescriptive, for the most part, on the details of policy minutiae, but the goal is clear. 
It is our collective responsibility to use the power and influence we have to build a society that protects the vulnerable above all else. God cares about politics, about the type of society we build together. God cared in Jeremiah's day. God cared in Jesus' day. God cares in our day. And as the people of God following Jesus into the world together, we should too.